So we're going to cover two chapters today, chapters 19 and 20. It's a longer section, but I want to let you know why we're covering these two chapters. For the past few weeks, uh, this is week number 21, for the past few weeks, we have been going through the book of Matthew to try to learn what kind of king Jesus is. Matthew is trying to say that Jesus is the highest king, greatest king, best king ever. And we've been trying to learn what kind of king that is, and we've learned time and time again that Jesus is a king unlike anyone had expected. In fact, in many ways, he's a king that's different from what we would want in a kingdom. Jesus is, we want a king who can be strong enough to defeat our enemies. We want a king who can keep us safe and secure. We want a king who can help us experience prosperity. And Jesus, at every single turn in the book of Matthew, continues to be a king who is reaching out to the enemy and loving them. He's the king who's inviting the foreigner, the distant person, the, the, the person that no one else loves. He's inviting that person in to be closer. He's the person who's touching people with leprosy. Jesus is doing all the things that no one would have ever wanted this king to do. He's a king that no one expected, but he's also the king that no one wanted because he's the king of the lowly. And in many respects, you could say that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Because nearly everything that is true about us and the way we think the world should work, when Jesus talks about his kingdom, he gives us a picture of something that is completely backwards or upside down compared to our expectations. And so the reason we're going to be doing these two chapters together today is that one, these are the two chapters that tell the story of Jesus' final journey from the region of Galilee to Jerusalem on his final trek towards his death. And so I want you to see all these stories together in one lump because this is Jesus's journey story to Jerusalem where he will be killed. Secondly, the the second reason you need to see these stories all together is that not only is it Jesus's final journey, but it's also the final summary of everything he's been teaching. It is sort of the concluding chapter of Jesus' teaching. And everything in chapter 19 and 20 is teaching the same basic concept. He's teaching the concept of the upside-down kingdom and what it means to follow a king who would be an upside-down king. What it means to follow a king who consistently flips the script and does the backwards or the upside-down thing. It leaves us with two questions. And so I'm going to give you the two questions, uh, the two, you know, not questions, the two big points at the beginning of our message, and then you'll also see them again at the end. But everything in these two chapters really boils down to what kind of person you are. Because as Jesus is going to Jerusalem for his death, and as Jesus is giving his final instructions to his followers before his death, he lets us see two points of application that depend on who you are. If you're a person who has power and influence and authority, if you're a person who has a measure of voice in this world, you have some ability to influence others, you have some ability to um, have a positive impact on other people or a negative impact on other people, if you have any power whatsoever, then the lesson you need to take away from these chapters is that I need to leverage my power for the cause of the lowly. Jesus is an upside-down king who takes power and uses it for the cause of the lowly, not for the advancement of the already powerful. Jesus flips the script constantly. He elevates the lowly and says they're the ones that we should be serving. 
It's completely upside down and backwards. But if you have any power whatsoever in your life, then you need to be a person who leverages that power for the cause of the lowly. Secondly, some of you might not feel like you have all that much power in this world. Some of you might feel lowly yourselves. Some of you might feel humiliated in all kinds of ways yourselves. Some of you might feel that you are a person who doesn't have anything to offer. And I want to tell you there's a practical application from this passage too. The practical application is that there's a day coming when your humiliation is going to turn into rewards, when your humiliation will be rewarded. Jesus puts both of these promises onto the table repeatedly during these couple of chapters. And so because we've got a lot of ground to cover, we have to jump right on into it. You'll see these show up again at the end, but let's jump right on into it. We're in Matthew chapter 19, beginning all the way at verse 1. Go there with me. It says this, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea, went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. This is just the, the prologue. This is just the little bit of information to let us know that Jesus is traveling from Galilee to Judea. That's how you know he is on his way down to Jerusalem. Here we go. What does he say? Verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him and to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I'd love to spend just hours talking about this passage, but I'll just make one quick note here that you can see. Did you notice Jesus doesn't answer their question? They said, can we divorce our wives for any reason? And Jesus says, let me read Genesis to you. It's a very interesting thing that Jesus does. But anyway, he adds that line at the end. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Verse 7. Why then, and here's their test. See, they knew Jesus was going to give the Sunday school answer. And so now they're giving him the practical answer you know, the real test. They said, oh, well, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Huh, Jesus? Moses actually gave us the divorce permission, the divorce command. What do you say about that, Jesus? Verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. I want you to notice a couple things here in this passage. Notice the use of the word you in Jesus' words. In verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Now, there's, of course, a gender clue in the passage when he says, your wives. So now let me ask you the question, who is the you Jesus is addressing? On one hand, he's clearly addressing the particular people who have asked him this question. But on a bigger picture, Moses allowed you, commanded you to divorce your wives, Jesus said. Who is the your in that sentence? I'll be honest with you, it's men. It is not the wives. 
See, there's an interesting thing going on here that the, the culture kind of knew, but Jesus needed to bring to the surface. See, in the culture of the day, there was a script that was written. The script that was written was this, marriage is for men. Marriage is for the benefit of men. Marriage is how a man gets a permanent sleeping partner in his house. And everything was about the man. Marriage is for men. Now, if a man in that society wanted to fulfill any kind of particular physical urges that he had, he could go to any number of areas in the city, even in Jewish areas, he could go to any number of places in the city to acquire such services. But marriage was the thing that meant I get to say that she is now permanently mine. Marriage was for men. That's the script. But Jesus does something very, very interesting when he flips this script. Notice all the little details in what Jesus said to them. First, let's go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was the passage where Moses gave the divorce command. And Moses' divorce command was that the men were supposed to write an, a certificate of divorce. Now, let's just be clear on why that command even is there. Because, you see, if you live in a society where men have all the power, if you live in a society where in a marriage, especially, the man has all the power, and if you live in a society where especially women who have been defiled physically are no longer valuable to any other man, and if you live in a society where women cannot provide their own means of financial support or anything else, then what you have is the making of a perfect time bomb that advantages all men and disadvantages all women in this particular way. If a man can marry any woman he chooses, and then at any point in time he decides he doesn't want her in his household, he can just plain kick her out, and there are zero societal consequences for doing so to him. He can kick her out and bring in another one. In fact, you see time and time again in the Old Testament, even supposedly godly men are taking multiple wives in. It was part of the, the standard script of the day. Marriage is for the man, and so the man can do whatever he wants, and if he doesn't want the woman anymore, he can just kick her out and get himself another one. But here's the problem. For the woman, once she is kicked out of that home, she now has nothing, to, no place to live. She has no means of income. There's nothing for her. Her only hope is to either turn herself to prostitution, which many did, or to find another man. But that other man is going to be like, well, hang on a second, I'm not going to take you into my house. You're still married to that other guy. I don't know if you're telling me the truth that he actually kicked you out. Where's the proof that he actually kicked you out? And so Moses said, if you're going to kick out a woman, you have to give her a signed certificate saying she's allowed to leave and go to someone else. Let's just be clear. The Deuteronomy command about divorce was to protect the woman. It was to ensure that the man had to go through at least a modicum of legal proceedings if he wanted to get rid of the woman in his house. It was to protect the woman. So Jesus says, Moses permitted it because your hearts were hard. You men, God knew that you were going to kick the women out anyway because you have such hard hearts, you're such evil people, that I tell you what, God created a, a registration almost mechanism to allow a woman to have a license to remarry. That if you're going to kick her out and mistreat her, 
you at least need to let the world know what's going on here. That certificate then could be her protection in some regards. But Jesus also referred to Genesis, didn't he? In Genesis, it says that the man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh, right? But pay close attention to that detail. It's the man who does the leaving. It's the man who leaves his father and his mother. It's the man who leaves his world of understanding. It's the man who leaves the thing that's comfortable to him, the thing that gives him comfort, security, power, strength. It's the man who leaves that and he moves in the direction of the woman and then the two of them become one flesh, not hierarchy, not now you're above her, now you're in charge of her, now you own her. You become one flesh. You have ceased to become yourself and you have now moved towards someone else and become a new thing. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus says, the man is no longer a man. He is a man in the direction of the woman. See, here's the fascinating thing. The script said that marriage was for men, but Jesus flips the script and he says, no, marriage exists. In fact, even divorce exists for the security and nobility of the woman. That's what it was created to be from the beginning. But we all know that history has done the wrong script. In fact, even the disciples around Jesus at that moment had their script so wrong that they admitted it to Jesus. Let me show you. In verse 10, put it up on the screen here. It says, The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. In other words, the disciples are saying, Wait a minute. If you say we're supposed to be one flesh, if you say I can't get rid of this woman, if you say the marriage is not for me, it's actually more for her, if that's what you're saying, Jesus, well, then I don't want to get married. They're right, Men like that shouldn't get married. Men like that should not be allowed. There should be some sort of test. Are you in this for you or are you in this for this other person? And some sort of psychological assessment to figure out, are you in this for you or are you in this for the other person? If you're in it for you, no marriage license. I would love to live in a world like that. That would be be nice. I, I would like that, I think. But anyway, the point is the disciples understood what Jesus was getting at. You see? The disciples understood that Jesus was flipping this script because the power dynamic in their world said men are on top and we like to keep it that way. And Jesus says, no. What you need to do is recognize that for some reason men have some power that they are supposed to use in the direction of the woman. Now, what's interesting is that we live in a day today where the script is not the same. We don't live in a patriarchal society. We don't live in a society, I mean, it's partially patriarchal. In a lot of ways, it's still male-dominated. But we don't live in a society where marriage is constantly viewed as for the man. In fact, in some respects, we live in a world where marriage is viewed as only for the women, and so the men try to get whatever they can get without the marriage. And it's a messed up situation in a totally different way. But, but we still live in a, in a world where it doesn't feel exactly the same as it did for them back then. So I'm going to um, kind of de-genderize the commands Jesus gives. 
Rather than focusing Jesus' commands entirely on the man's responsibility, like when he says if the man divorces the wife, which, remember, the men were the only ones who were allowed to divorce the wife. They were the only ones who had the permission or the power to do the divorce. In our society, either party can do the divorce. And so I'm going I'm I'm to degenderize it and more generalize it in two statements so that you can understand what Jesus is really teaching about marriage and divorce. And then we have to move on from this. But two things violate a marriage. Number one, in fidelity, and number two, rejection. What Jesus says here is that anyone who divorces his spouse except for marital unfaithfulness, except for an affair, some sort of sexual or under, slightly less than sexual, some kind of marital unfaithfulness, Anyone who divorces their spouse for, some mar- for something other than marital unfaithfulness has committed adultery. Now see, here's the interesting thing. What Jesus is saying is that either adultery has entered the marriage because of the infidelity, or the divorce causes adultery. And adultery is a fancy word for violating the marriage covenant. So two things violate the marriage covenant, actual infidelity or the rejection of the person saying, I no longer want you to be my wife. I no longer want you to be my husband. I'm kicking you out. We're going to get a divorce. Now, rejection can come in a lot of forms short of a divorce certificate. Rejection can come in the forms of abuse or abandonment. And, and so it's a complicated, big scenario, and some churches have gone way down, I think, the too legalistic, restrictive route of saying, listen, no divorce ever, and if you get a divorce, you're a sinful person, and you need to... I mean, some churches have used it very heavily to really discriminate against people who, who have been through a divorce. And, and I want to reassure you of something about what the Bible says about divorce, Remember that the Bible said a divorce certificate was required because the man wanted to just kick out the woman, but a divorce certificate was required because that thing could protect the weak in the scenario. And so I want to remind you that for God, divorce is something He created. Divorce is a God-given tool to protect the victim. Divorce is a God-given tool to protect the victim. Now, what I'm trying to say here is that Jesus is flipping the script. And there are lots of ways we could dig more deeply into this, but I need to move on because, see, the disciples asked that question about maybe it's better not to get married, and so I want to address that with you. Let's go back to it. Verse 10, the disciples said to Jesus, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word. Pause there for just a second. The disciples said something that you think was a snarky comment. Well, Jesus, if that's the way you're going to teach about marriage, then we should just never get married. And you think Jesus is going to respond with, listen, guys, stop being so sarcastic. Listen, guys, you don't have to, you don't have to be like that. Here, let me explain it to you. But no, he agrees with them. See what he says? He says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. And then, this is weird, he says, for there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Okay, this is weird. Jesus uses the word eunuch specifically because he's talking about sex. 
A eunuch was a man who had become physically incapable of engaging in any sort of normal male-female sexuality. They were usually uh, men who were slaves, who were employed by a king to keep watch over his harem of women so that the king could be sure that this guy wasn't going to fool around with any of them because he was physically incapable of doing so. And so eunuch was a word for a person who was physically incapable of engaging in normal male-female sexuality. And this is interesting. Jesus says there are some people who are born that way. There are some people who are born such that they cannot or for whatever other reason are not, at, are not able to participate in normal male-female sexuality. I am fascinated by the fact that Jesus said there are some people who are born that way and cannot participate in the normal male-female sexuality. I'm fascinated by that. He also says there are some people who are made that way. Some people, because of some trauma that happened in their lives, they are not able to participate in normal male-female sexuality. And Jesus is using the word eunuch to highlight that he is talking about sex. He says some people are born that way. Some people encountered trauma that turned them into that somehow. There's, There's a psychological thing or there's a physical thing that has made it so that they cannot engage in normal male female sexuality. And there's a third category of people who have a value system that is such that they choose to never engage in normal male female sexuality. So there are three categories. There are those who are born that way. There are those who were made that whether through some trauma or some other physical thing that has happened, or mental even. And then there's some who choose it. But this is what he says about it. Those who do, those who find themselves in that position, are in a noble position. The word we would use for that is celibacy. And Jesus is saying that celibacy is a noble path, regardless of how a person gets on it. This is interesting to me because the script of the day is that you're not a real man unless you've got a woman, had a woman, had multiple women. You're not a real woman unless you've got a man. There's some people in our world today who still share that same script. You're not a real man unless you've got some notches on your belt. You're not a real woman unless you've got a a man at home. Uh, There are sometimes... This story is out there. And Jesus wants you to know that that script is wrong. Instead, Jesus would say, the pathway of celibacy is noble. And not everyone can do it. But those who find themselves in that position, whether because of their birth or something that happened to them or their choice, have a noble path they are walking. It's an amazing thing that Jesus would say, but we can't linger there. We just know that Jesus has done something again upside down. Let's keep going and see what we run into next. Jesus is going to flip the script on children. Verse 13, it says, The people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuked him. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he'd placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now, we, we've seen Jesus do something similar to this before. They, little children, he loves 
to point out that little children have a kind of humility and innocence and loneliness and poverty of spirit that Jesus finds incredibly valuable. And so he wants to say the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are humble like little children. He values little children. The society of the day said the script. Children are insignificant. We don't need them around. You know, let them be not seen or heard. But the Jesus' flipping of the script said, no, 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 little children are exactly what you're supposed to be in so many ways. I don't have a blank for you to fill in. Let's just keep going, move along. We've got the next section. Jesus is going to flip the script on wealth, verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Quick comment. Jesus says that weird thing about why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who's good. There's another passage in another gospel where it's using a slightly different wording for that, but I'll just give you a quick, quick hint about what Jesus is doing there. Jesus is doing a quick connection where he says, you use the word good to refer to something about me. I'm reminding you that good is a word that refers to God. Jesus is doing that. Jesus says, ha ha, you just used the word good to something about me, and I'm reminding you that good is a word that applies to God. You draw the line. That's basically what he's saying. He's trying to indicate to the other person that there is a divinity in Jesus that he just wants to put out there in sort of the mist of the air that hopefully some people it will settle on. But he keeps going. That's not his main point. He says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? Oh, What an arrogant question. I mean, think about that. How privileged does this guy have to be to think that some of the commands don't apply to him? How arrogant, how privileged, how, what was his life growing up where he saw the world around him and some people had to follow all the commands, but he, for whatever reason, only had to follow some of them? That somehow along his journey, he began to feel like he was special that he was somehow above the others, that he wasn't encumbered by all the normal stuff. Which ones, Jesus? I mean, for me, really, Jesus, which commands do I need to keep? Such a weird, arrogant question for him to ask. But Jesus gives him an honest answer. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, the guy says, all these I have kept, the young man said. How arrogant. Oh, wait a minute. I guess maybe he never did murder. Maybe he never did commit adultery. Maybe he never did actually steal. Maybe he never gave false testimony in the context that he thought the Bible was saying when it said false, like he never stood up on a witness stand and swore an oath and gave, I mean, the little white lies, he's not counting that probably, you know, he's, it's the false testimony. He's okay with that one. Honor your father, sure, I'm honoring my father and my mother. Love your neighbors yourself. Well, sure, we're all doing that a little bit, aren't we? So yeah, yeah, he could say, yeah, I'm doing all these things. I've kept all these things. Sure. What do I still lack? The man asks. Um, let me show you. Jesus said, follow the commandments. When Jesus says, follow the commandments, which commandments are you thinking of? Let's just start with the 10. The 10. The 10 commandments. And let's just see what we find in that list. We find 
No other gods, no idols, honor God's name, honor the Sabbath, honor your parents, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no deception, and no coveting. This is the order of the commands that the Jewish people of Jesus' day would have had. Um, Today, the Catholic Church divides them slightly differently. They connect no other gods and no idols into one command, and they separate no coveting into two commands. But basically, you've got this pattern. The four on the left are mostly the commands about God, your relationship with God, and not other people. The commands on the right side are almost in entirely about your relationship with other people, but also your relationship to stuff, especially at the end, no coveting or, or no stealing, perhaps. It's mostly a relationship with other people thing, but it's also a little bit about your relationship to stuff. But the left is all about you and God. The right is mostly about you and people. And so Jesus says, wait a minute, Jesus gave a list, didn't he? The man says, which commands? And Jesus gives a list. Let's see which commands Jesus mentions. He mentioned, honor your parents, don't murder, no adultery, no stealing, no deception, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus mentioned. And the man says, what do I lack? Well, I find it interesting that Jesus may, because he's Jesus, he may have said the commands that the man was already doing. And Jesus may possibly have intentionally not mentioned the commands the man was not doing. In other words, for you and for me, I can look at that list and I can see the ones Jesus mentions and I can say to myself, I'm doing pretty good at those. And then the question is, what do I lack? It's obvious, isn't it? There's something wrong with my relationship to God and there's something wrong with my relationship to stuff. Why would Jesus say such a thing to this guy? Some of you know the story. I, I know you know a little bit about this person. We've already hinted a little bit about what kind of person this guy might be, but let's keep going. The man says, what do I lack? So let's see what Jesus says. Verse 21, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, now perfect doesn't mean 100% morally perfect. Perfect means you want to fill up the stuff that's lacking. So you're, you've got these things, you're lacking these things. If you want to fill up what's lacking, if you want to get that stuff taken care of, if you want to be full Perfect in the Greek can also be translated full. If you want to be full like that, this is what you need to do. You need to sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. you got to square away your relationship to stuff, your relationship to some other people about stuff, and your relationship to God. That's what Jesus says. And so the man, verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered, And we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Such selfishness. And yet Jesus still gives him a really good answer. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. 
The script of Jesus' day said that wealth meant that God was blessing you. And Jesus flips it. And he says, no. As a matter of fact, earthly wealth and heavenly rewards are inversely related. Earthly wealth and heavenly rewards are inversely related. The people of Jesus' day thought that if you had more earthly wealth, that was a symbol that God was blessing you on earth. And clearly, God, who's blessing you on earth, would still bless you in the years and age to come. But Jesus says, no. You rich dude, sell everything you have, give to the poor, follow me, and then you will have treasure in heaven. He says to Peter and the rest of them, You've given up everything, and I tell you, anyone who's given up all the stuff of this world for my sake will receive much more in the kingdom, because many who are last will be first, and the first will be last. Jesus is the script flipper. Jesus is the king of the upside-down kingdom. Jesus is the one who says, listen, your heavenly rewards are inversely proportional to your earthly wealth. Now, quick you know, side comment about this. Jesus is not saying that you have to be earthly poor to be heavenly rich. What he is saying is, if you are not heart poor, then the way you use your earthly wealth will never make you heavenly rich. See, Jesus always talked about being poor in spirit, right? A couple weeks ago, I talked with you about how if I view myself as lowly, then I'm much more willing to grant something to someone else, to share with them, to forgive them, or whatever else it is. See, our problem is that when we get wealthy, we begin to think like we deserve it. We begin to think like we've earned it. We begin to think like God has chosen us, or he's blessed us, or we're somehow privileged. And what's weird is that any time we are experiencing privilege, we somehow lead ourselves to believe that privilege was deserved. That's something that goes on in our hearts and in our minds anytime. And so this guy, he's like, he's a special person. No, he was just raised in special circumstances. But when he says, Jesus, listen, I know some of the commands aren't for everybody. And I know I'm one of the people who's clearly got God's blessing on my life. So Jesus, which commands do I need to follow? He's got that sense of privilege all over him. And Jesus says, no, I'll tell you what, until you strip all that away. This passage here is one of the hardest passages for people in North America to be Christians with. And so we often just write it off. We often just say, well, Jesus isn't talking to me. We often just say, oh, well, that's one of those commands that I don't have to keep. We often say, well, that's one of the commands that the other person, you know, the rich person who's also bad, that person needs to follow that command. Not just the person who feels a normal level of privilege. Listen, I can't tell you how much money to keep in your bank account. There's no way possible for me to draw the line between your bank account and your heart. That's something that lies completely between you and God. We know from this one story about this one guy talking to Jesus who knows everything about the guy, that that guy was missing something in his life. And the thing that he was missing was that his greed had supplanted his relationship with God and a proper relationship with other people. And I'm just saying that we're in danger of that too. 
The selfishness, materialism, and greed that exists in our country has infected every single one of us in such deep, deep ways that it's hard for us to even understand what it means to live without such privilege. It's hard for us to understand what it means to live in such a way that we would be people who would be willing to sell everything, give to the poor, and follow Jesus. But he's the king of the upside-down kingdom. Jesus is the king who flips the script. Jesus is the king who looks at your earthly wealth and says, so what? But on the other hand, Jesus is the one who looks at your earthly poverty, your earthly humility, whatever you have lost, whatever you have given up for him, and he says, no, one of these days that will be rewarded. Chapter 21 we're going to deal with quickly because there's this big story at the beginning of chapter 21. And Jesus is trying to illustrate the point of the fact that that you, the first will be last, the last will be first. He's going to try to illustrate the point that your privilege isn't something you deserve. And so he tells this story. I'll just narrate it quickly for you. Jesus says there's a guy who owns some property. He owns a vineyard, and he's, it's time for the harvest, so he wants to get some workers in his vineyard. He goes out early morning, 6 a.m., and he gets a whole bunch of workers from the town square where the people would just stand out waiting around for some landowner to come and offer them a job. So he goes, and he gets them 6 a.m. He gets a bunch of workers. He says, come and work in my field. I'll pay you a denarius, which is a day's wage. Then he realizes he doesn't have enough workers, and so he goes back out to the town square at about 9 a.m., and he says, I need some more workers for my harvest. I will, pay you, I will pay you what you're worth. I will pay you the right wage for your work. So come here and work, and they decide to work. And then he realizes he needs more, so he goes out at 12, and he says, I, I need some more workers, and he hires some more. Then he goes out at 3 o'clock again, and he hires some more workers. And then finally he goes out at 5 o'clock. It's almost sundown. It's almost the harvest is over, but he goes out at 5 o'clock. He he sees some guys still standing around. He says, why are you still standing around here? And they said, no one offered us a job all day. And he said, well, come and work for me. And so he hires them. They come over and they work. And then at the end of the day, he lines them all up and he starts with the people at the very beginning of the day and he pays them and he gives them a denarius. And they're like, okay, that's great. And he goes through the whole list and everybody gets a denarius. Everybody gets a full day's, a full day's wage for the amount of work. And the people who started the day, they're like, wait a minute, what's going on with this? How, how is it possible that you're giving them a day's wage when they only worked for two hours and you're giving us a day's wage? And the guy says, wait a minute, I promised you a day's wage and it's my money. Are you upset that I'm generous? Let me show it to you. Verse 13 it says this. He answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last, Jesus says. Jesus is flipping the script now on the eternal rewards. Because Jesus says a thing that you and I need desperately, but we kind of don't want. God doesn't give you what you deserve. Ever. God's gifts, His grace, it's based entirely on His own generosity. It's not based upon you earning something or because you're special or because you've somehow paid your dues. 
It sounds like that. Peter says, we've given up everything. And Jesus says, well, you'll receive a whole bunch in the heavenly kingdoms. But then Jesus immediately responds, immediately responds to Peter to say, but let me just let you know. When I say you're going to receive a ton in heaven, I am not saying that you, Peter, are going to get it better than anyone else. Because my father can give whatever he wants to whomever he wants in whatever quantity. And he is going to be just as generous with you as he is with anyone else because none of you get what you deserve. That's who God is. One final flipping the script story here is in verse 17. Verse 17 of chapter 20. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Listen, if you hear your leader say that, you should feel weird. You should be like, wait a minute. Okay, A, you're telling us in advance you're going to be killed and we're going in that direction. B, you're telling us you're going to be killed and you're not asking us to prepare to protect you. C, you're telling us you're going to be killed and you're going to rise again on the third day. See, I would have questions, I think. I think if my leader were to say something like that to me, I would pause and I would have some questions. I'd be like, okay, Jesus, now can we just sit down for a moment and you can explain to me again what you mean by all this? Because you've said it before, Jesus, but now you're saying it while we're on the way to Jerusalem, and I'm not so sure I'm interested in continuing to walk this journey with you unless we get some details here. You'd think they would be curious about what Jesus said, but they're not. Look what happens next. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John. We don't get their names here as James and John because the writer Matthew wants to highlight the fact that these guys, despite being such blustering sons of thunder, which was their nickname elsewhere, They have chosen to hide behind their mommy in this next little section of what's going to happen. And so Matthew, the writer, is trying to just highlight for the fact that these men have almost no adult identity. They just get the names of their dad and the words of their mom. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. And Jesus does this amazing thing, what is it you want? He has just said, I'm going to die. And now his next question, question is, what do you want from me? Is there anything more I can do for you, sir? Jesus' ability to be humble astonishes me. She says, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Did they not just hear Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. They're not just going to kill me. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Do you want to drink the same cup I drink? They're like, sure, we can do it. Whatever. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. Another quick aside, theological aside. Jesus is so able to be humble that he recognizes there's an authority he does not possess. This is weird. The Father in heaven possesses authority that Jesus, the divine Son of God, does not And Jesus is okay with it. And he is telling them that. And he says, that question is for my father to decide. That's not my authority. 
Weird. It's just an interesting little side note. But keep going. Jesus says that. They've been prepared by my father. When the ten heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers, as you would be. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The script of the day. Get power when you can. Use it for you. And Jesus flips it. He says, it doesn't work that way for me. The way it works for me is that greatness only comes by serving. And the greatest servant is the greatest. When it comes to you and me, followers of Jesus, Jesus would say that his followers leverage whatever power they have to serve others. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Leveraging whatever power you have to serve others. Because even the Son of Man did not come for himself, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Being a follower of Jesus is ultimately dependent on this reality. Followers of Jesus leverage their power to serve others. And so if you're a person today who feels like you have some power, you have some influence, being a follower of Jesus for you means leveraging your power and influence, whatever it is, so that you serve other people. But that's not the only story. Because there are some people in the world who don't feel very powerful. There are some people in this world who don't feel like they have much authority. They don't have much influence. They don't have much power. And there is a message here for them too. It might be you. Jesus would say that those who are humiliated, oh, this is big. Those who are humiliated are the ones who look like Jesus. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Those who are humiliated for others, those who are humiliated for the sake of Jesus, those who are humiliated for the cause of the kingdom, those are the people who look like Jesus. These two chapters put together conclude what Jesus is trying to say to his followers. He is on the way to the cross, and he's giving them his final assessment of what being a follower of Jesus looks like and what living in the kingdom looks like. And for some of us, his words are challenging. If you're a person who has power and influence in your life, these words are challenging. Jesus would say, leverage your power for people who are not you. Leverage your privilege for people who are not you. But for others, Jesus' words are designed to enlarge and enrich the position of the downtrodden, the victim, the lowly. Jesus is flipping the script. Power is not for the powerful. Power is for the weak. And so if you are one of the weak, if you are one of the poor, if you are one of the poor in spirit, if you are one of the humiliated, if you are one of the humble, if you are one of the lowly, Jesus says, hey, you're in good company because you look like me and rewards are coming. I don't know which person you are, For me, I think very often I'm both. Some days I'm more one than the other. Some days I'm more the other than the one. And 
And each moment I need to remember the message of Jesus, that if I have power, I leverage it for others. If I don't have power, then I'm looking like Jesus, which is an amazing thing. There's a little section left that I'm not going to read. I encourage you to read sometime this week. But if you read the final few verses of chapter 20, what you see is an amazing story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and some men on the side of the road yell out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And the people are so irritated by them. They're making so much noise. Everybody wants to hear Jesus. They don't want to hear these two guys wailing, two blind men on the side of the road. Who cares about them? I mean, so insignificant. They're almost, society should really just get rid of them if they could possibly find a way to just do that because these guys are just draining on everybody else. Why would, why would anyone, I mean, we don't, we just shut up, they would say to the guys. In fact, they did. They tried to rebuke them. But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes up to them. And he says, what can I do for you? How humble to consistently say, what can I do for you? He says that, what can I do for you? And the guys say, we want to see. And Jesus heals their eyes. And they can see. You see, the epilogue of this whole section is that Jesus can't be stopped when the opportunity is to serve. And neither should we. If there's an opportunity to serve, it doesn't matter how repulsive the situation is. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable the situation is. If there's an opportunity for us to use our power, to leverage our influence in some way, to bless the person who is weak, to bless the person who is wounded, to bless the person who is lowly, to bless the person who is oppressed, if there's some way that we can leverage our power for the cause of others, then we better do it because Jesus will stop at nothing to serve other people. And so I just encourage you, take from this passage encouragement, take from this passage challenge, and let's be people who look like Jesus because we have humbled ourselves and accepted humiliation in serving others and experience the joy of doing so. Listen, over these next couple of months, our church is at an opportunity to reshape who we all are on the inside so that we can be better at serving those who are on the outside. And I hope during this journey, we together will look more and more like Jesus as we do it. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.